Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit our website at www.yale.edu slash sustainable food. Hello, everyone. My name is Ryan Mayer Evans, and I'm a student farm manager with the Yale Sustainable Food Program. Joining me in the studio today is Eric Holt Jimenez. Eric is the executive director of Food First, an organization out of Oakland, California, that seeks to expose the root causes of hunger and inequalities in our current food systems. His work spans from agroecology to political economy and provides a valuable lens through which to imagine food systems that haven't just been reformed, but transformed. Eric draws from several decades of working with communities most affected by the current industrial food system, which informs his work um, and research. Welcome, Eric. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for having me. So you're, you're in New Haven for a weekend to speak at the New Haven Food Policies Council's annual meeting. Um, this seems to be one stop of many, kind of in, in a tour of the United States and urban centers. You just came out of a few weeks in the southern United States, um, where you've been discussing issues relating to food justice, racial justice, food sovereignty, and the food movement at large. Um, what excites you most about the food work that you've seen being done in these cities? And if you could speak to, to New Haven in particular, that'd be great, too. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, I've just started the tour. I was in New York City um, for the kickoff. This is our 40th anniversary at Food First. So we've been dismantling the injustices that cause hunger for 40 years and addressing the root causes of hunger. And on one hand, we're celebrating 40 years of very good work. On the other hand, of course, why are we still talking about the same things that we were talking about 40 years ago? Why are one in seven, or yeah, one in seven people going hungry around the world and in the United States, richest country in the world, which produces more food than anybody except maybe China? Um, so these sort of contradictions, um, a billion hungry people at a time where we're, we're breaking records in terms of uh, food production in the world. We've been addressing these things for quite some time, and what's happened is that, um, you know, people have responded, those who have been most affected by this food system, globally and locally, have fought back and have tried to survive and tried to become food secure when they're food insecure. And so, uh, yeah, we've been visiting people on this tour. Food First makes a habit of looking very closely about what people do regarding the food system, how they try to uh, ensure their food security, how they try to change the food system, how they try to transform the food system. We listen very closely to social movements around the world. We, We visit communities. Um, and local organizations and food policy councils to try and see what people are doing and understand that within the larger structural context of the corporate food regime. So on this tour, we're on one hand both um, celebrating 40 years and the support that people have given us for 40 years, um, and on the other hand, uh, just trying to get uh, take the pulse of the food movement in the United States and try to identify um, what's new, what's bold, what's hard, what, uh, what needs to be done over uh, the, ne- in the next steps in terms of transforming our food systems. So I'm here in New Haven, um, just got off the train. 
Uh, I have been here before. I'm very excited about uh, this time I'm going to get a chance to meet with the New Haven Food Policy Council, for example, and really meet with some of the uh, community food groups that last time around I wasn't able to meet with uh, because it was more of a university tour. Um, but this time uh, we get to see what people are actually doing on the ground. So to, to elaborate a little bit on you know, what, what people are doing on the ground and what Food First and what you have identified as being you know, the, the pulse in urban food systems, Let's, could, could we talk a little bit about scale and replicability, right? Like, do you think that every urban, urban food center should have a food policy council or should they be pushing for community gardens, greening urban spaces? What, what programs, if any, can be reproduced all across different geographies? Or, or is it something that should arrive like organically and hyper-locally instead? Well, I, I may think yes to all of the above is, is what has to happen. I mean, the, what we've seen in the United States in particular is because um, food insecurity and diet-related diseases um, fall most heavily upon underserved communities of color, that this is where the very innovative and very sort of bold and in some cases very desperate um, measures and alternatives are being taken from the ground up uh, under extremely difficult conditions because by the time someone becomes food insecure, a number of things have happened. It means, um, one, that the sort of public sphere in which they live has been eroded. It means that the public goods have disappeared. It might mean that there have been land grabs, whether that's gentrification or the financialization of land. And it very likely means that there has been um, oppression and racism, um, either in, in the um, terms of their job, in terms of labor, right, or just in terms of daily life and in terms of access to food. So um, all of these sort of intersectional um, oppressions, uh, whether they're from gender or race or sexual orientation, or whether because people are immigrants and uh, don't have uh, documents, um, all of these come together in the food system in underserved communities. And what we're seeing is that communities are fighting back. On one hand, you see, you know, the tremendous explosion of you know food pantries and the rise of what were originally supposed to be temporary programs in food assistance, these are now permanent. Um, people fight to defend these, people organize around them, um, but then also we see, you know, the, the rise of uh, urban gardens and urban farms so that people can have access to fresh food, uh, fresh healthy food, because they don't, right? And um, now we're beginning to see, in addition to all these very sort of um, uh, emergency measures and very interesting practices, innovative practices of uh, and farm to school programs and you know the gardens, the CSAs, the farmers markets. And this, we're seeing people trying to change the rules, change the institutions, and change the rules. Because getting back to your question about you know should we be scaling this up? Should we be doing this everywhere and whatnot? I think this would be happening everywhere. I think all these 
um, very innovative uh, sort of healthy food initiatives and um, local food initiatives would be happening everywhere if, in fact, the structures and the institutions and the rules in our food system didn't work against them. So um, rather than ask, you know, how do we scale up these good things, um, we have to ask, well, if they're so great, why isn't everybody doing them? And the reason is they're being held back. Uh, they're being held back because, in fact, um, our farm bill and from our farm, farm bill on down, basically the food system is not geared for people. The food system is geared for profit um, and not just you know, minor profit. We're talking about corporate oligopoly, monopoly profit, um, which carries with it, of course, the tremendous weight of uh, corporate power, which gets to determine what happens uh, in our food system. So people are trying to step back from that and create a separate space, but at the same time we're realizing that if we really want to grow that space so that it works for everybody, we're going to have to address the political problems that, um, su that we suffer in our food system. One, one phrase that I think speaks to that comes from, from the Black Panthers. They had this idea of survival pending, pending revolution, right, where, you know, you look at a bunch of, like, food pantries or, you know, mobile farmer's markets, but you realize these are only, like, Band-Aid fixes to much larger structural problems. So how do we, how do we begin to, to address or confront the, the very wicked intertwinings between racial and class injustices in our food systems? And then... More broadly speaking, because we're talking about global food systems here as well, right? It's a global structure of food. It's global corporations that control power, right? Um, how do we begin to address the histories of colonialism, of imperialism, that have resulted in the global south producing around 70% of the, of the world's food? Well, I, I'm glad that you mentioned the, the Black Panthers, because if we look at the food justice movement, uh, which I think is the most um, powerful and uh, promising uh, current within the larger food movement. Um, the Panthers uh, were very clear about a number of things. Um, and one was food. So they started a food breakfast program for children. Uh, they fed a quarter of a million kids every day. Uh, without a penny from government or a penny from philanthropy. They were really practicing food sovereignty. They got the resources and the food from the community. Right? Um, now, African-American communities have uh, been economically devastated since the 70s. So the, w the wealth which was held in African-American-owned businesses that the Panthers, uh, that contributed to the Panthers' um, breakfast program to a large degree no longer exist. But the point was that the Panthers were organizing locally to address a national problem of discrimination. So food was one plank in a larger platform for black liberation. And they wanted food, they wanted land, they wanted an end to police brutality, they wanted um, uh, housing, education, you know, all these things. But food was just a part of it. And I think this is very important because one gets the impression from um, some of the food movement that somehow we can change um, the food system from within without addressing the larger problems in our society or in our economy. 
Um, and I don't think that's possible. So, for example, I don't think we can change the, um, the food system simply by voting with our forks. In other words, um, eating in accordance with one's values, eating local, eating organic. That's all very good. We should do that. But most people can't do that. Most people can't afford that. You know, that um, as a, a friend of mine said uh, one time, if we're voting with our forks in many neighborhoods, there are no polling stations. Um, so we have to address the larger system. And I think the first thing we have to realize is that we have a capitalist food system. And it sounds silly to say that because it sh should be so obvious. But in fact, m most people don't act as if they realize that. If we have a capitalist food system, it's going to act the way capitalism acts. It can act in no other way. And so at this period in capitalist development, which some call a period of late capitalism, what we have is tremendous inequality. 85 people now own half of the world's wealth. Um, and tremendous uh, concentration of power in the hands of a few monopolies and oligopolies, right, who then offload all the social and environmental externalities of the food system onto everybody else. Everybody else has to pay the costs, right? And so we have the, you know, the privatization of everything, the deregulation, the uh, regulation of everything, whatnot. Um, if we don't address these larger um, political, economic concerns, it's going to be very difficult to introduce reforms into our food system or even transform our food system. We can't transform the system solely on the basis of uh, market-based alternatives. The market isn't always the solution. In fact, at this time, the market is largely the problem. I mean, you can point at the global food riots that happened in the mid-2000s. You could look at the housing crisis. You can look at the financial crisis that resulted in, you know, stuff like Occupy Wall Street. Greed completely, right? The, the point to kind of the inner contradictions within the global system that's been built up since the 70s in the 80s. The, the question I have then is, when we look towards the, the process of transforming food systems, how do we make the process more participatory, democratic, egalitarian? Um, because it seems like there are just such large policy and legal apparatuses like built up to, to maintain or concentrate power within the hands of a select few. Um, and, you know, what do you think would be more effective, right? Like working within the system to kind of challenge that built-up concentrated power or establishing, you know, sovereign food systems outside of that system of power. Where where do those two poles meet? Yeah, where well, can it they is meet? A, it is a, a both-and proposition. Um, I mean, clearly we, we have what uh, theorists call, you know, a liberal democracy. But that liberal democracy, liberal actually refers to the market and not just to... Um, uh, liberal ideas and social ideas. Uh, it really does refer to the market. And um, we have a very liberalized market now. We have a neoliberalized market. We've taken the gloves off the market, and it's sort of systematically destroying the social and the um, material basis for the reproduction of, of capitalism itself. We, we're entering one of these periods where we, need, we desperately need reforms, as we did, you know, back in the 30s after the 1929 stock market crash and whatnot. And, and we did introduce these reforms, um, largely on the basis of the power of social movements. So 
if we're going to talk about democracy and, and, and where do we work, do we enter into the system or do we work outside the system and whatnot, I think, first of all, we have to realize what kind of democracy we have and that we may want a different type of mo a democracy, a much more radical democracy, a much more participatory democracy. And this is very difficult to get right now within our current system. So where do we build it? And I think um, what's very promising is that people are building it in their local food systems. They're building it in their um, food organizations. So you have one path which, which, attempt, which takes the existing democracy as a given and tries to vote with its fork, which is an interesting sort of um, an extreme uh, interpretation of liberal democracy, mm, which is based on economic power, which is in fact what this democracy is based on. So it reflects that. So I'm not sure it's going to transform it or change it in and of itself. We need to change social relations. We need to change the market itself. So um, what, what communities and, and uh, the local uh, food justice movement in particular is facing is the challenge of building democracy from the ground up. At the same time, we have to rebuild our food systems. We have to transform our food systems at a time when our public sphere has been devastated by neoliberalism. The last 30 years of privatization, we've, we've lost so much of our public goods in terms of health, education, and welfare. But we've also lost the, that, that glue of social and community relationships, which we call the public sphere, which allowed communities to defend themselves from the volatility of the market or the political volatility um, which surrounded them. And that has been severely, severely eroded. And so if what we're beginning to see is that we can't transform our food system without rebuilding that public sphere. And where is it happening? Happening, We actually see it within, under, within our underserved communities, rebuilding the public sphere within the underserved communities because services don't work, because the government doesn't work, because for many people, the only government they know is the police. And the police relationship in underserved communities of color in this country is atrocious. They brutalize them. Well, I yeah. mean, it's gotten to extreme levels where, where young men are being murdered um, by the police. And that, you say, what does that have to do with the food system? Uh, everything. If you look at our food system, look at the, the, how the global food system affects underserved communities in this country and affects um, the racialized rise in police brutality in this country, and you realize that when the Green Revolution was exported from the United States to the Global South, it destroyed the peasantry in the Global South. These are all people of color. Where did they go? Well, they first went to the city creating the planet of slums that Mike Davis talks about, and then they came to the U.S. looking for work. When the free trade agreements were signed, NAFTA, CAFTA, um, in, in the Americas, and further put farmers out of business, small farmers out of business in the Global South. Within, within a year of the signing of the free trade agreement uh, with, between uh, the United States, Mexico, and Canada, over a million farmers went bankrupt in Mexico. These are all small farmers. Where are they now? They're here in the United States. Where are they working? They're working in the food system. They're the ones who pick the crops, process the, the food, um, and serve the food. They're the ones working in the back of the house of the fancy restaurants, um, giving you nice French 
uh, French cuisine, it's very often um, a Mexican farmer um, who's been dispossessed and is now in the U.S. And so all of these, where do these people go to live? Well, they're poor. So they're going to live in underserved communities where there are no services and where there's a rise in police brutality. So the social and racial contradictions in our country cannot be divorced from the global uh, food system and the corporate food regime and how it has proceeded over the last half century. Um, so I think it's, it's when we see the rise in, in the food justice movement and we see the very sort of desperate organizing going on, um, this is a reflection of how badly things have got, gotten up to this point. Now, what are the obstacles to organizing, not just at the local level, but at the national level, to really change the rules? Um, and I think that the food movement has to take a very hard look, not just at the food system and at the larger economic system, but at itself. Because the class contradictions, the gender contradictions, and the racial contradictions which we see around us are reproduced within the food movement. And so, and this makes it very hard to organize, and this it makes it very hard to converge within all this diversity. I think Michael Pollan talks about the food movement as being very fragmented and diverse and sort of far-flung. And some people say, oh, it's a mile wide, it's an inch deep, and whatnot. Well, there's some truth to that, but it's also stratified. Mm. So we have elites in the food movement who tend to be white, who tend to be male, who tend to speak as if they were speaking for the entire movement. Um, and we have people in the trenches who are suffering the brunt of a, an oppressive food system, and these are people of color, and who also tend uh, to be women and girls, both worldwide and here in the United States. Women produce most of the world's food. Women and girls make up most of the world's hungry. Um, and that's reflected here in the U.S. as well. So how do we come together if we have all these obstacles? I think for the food movement, it means we have to dismantle racism in the food system, and we have to dismantle racism in the food movement. That means looking long and hard at white privilege, at oppression, at internalized oppression, and, and, and working with it not only at, the, at institutional scales, but our, at our own organizational scales, and of course, within ourselves. And, you know, the good news is that a lot of people are already doing this. A lot of people realize that this is important and are working very hard, both within the food, food movement and outside the food movement. There are a lot of resources here, but I think it's really time for the food movement to take this on as the work. In other words, this isn't extra work. This isn't something you do, you know, after you finish gardening. This isn't something you do after you go to the meeting of the Food Policy Council. Is it, no, this isn't extra work. This is the work. This, this is the core. This is the core. This is if what we needs don't to be do done. this, then we won't be able to converge in all of our wonderful diversity, and we won't be able to become a powerful food movement. And if we can't be a powerful food movement, I don't see how we expect to introduce 
any kind of substantive or transformative reforms into what is not a broken food system. It's working exactly as it's supposed to work. It's just not the right food system. It's the wrong food system. You're hitting on something very key, I think, when you say that we have to start to address, you know, classism, racism, sexism, and all the forms of, you know, intersecting oppressions that occur within our societies when we start to look at the reformation and transformation of our food system. Um, to pull one thing from just the wonderful um, cloud of ideas you just, you know, put to the table, um, I'd like to talk a little bit about how, how do we construct like a narrative or how do we give a microphone to the, to the voices that are most marginalized, that are most affected by the food system that have been, you know, indeed pushed to the margins within the food movement itself? Um, how do we construct a political narrative that can encompass the entire food system as, you know, fragmented or diffuse or diverse um, it may be? And how can we then use that that narrative, right? Because the narrative is the construction of narratives key in establishing any wide ranging social movement or political movement. What what do you think needs to be done on that front? The front of creating a history, creating a story, and bringing the people who are affected most by the current food system to to the front of the bargaining table and to the front of the public eye. Well, I'm sitting in front of a microphone. You should bring some people of color from. Um, New Haven to this microphone and they should be the ones talking here um, though I'm a person of mixed heritage I'm also a white man of privilege and this is something that um, uh, I, I'd like to think of myself as uh, um, as a recovering white man of privilege this is something that I'm going to have to always deal with and always figure out how to deconstruct and um, always find ways of stepping back and making space um, for those experiences and those voices which are uh, historically uh, invisibilized in this society and in our food movement to a tremendous degree. So this is why I think the food justice movement is important because the food justice movement has some very powerful leaders who can speak directly to this issue. Now, in terms of constructing a common narrative, um, again, we're not going to be able to construct anything in common until we deal with the things which divide us in a way which um, is bold and respective, respectful and uncompromising. In other words, we can't, we can't look back from this. We have to keep moving forward on this. And there's no way to go around it. We've got to push through it, and it's very painful. It's hard. Um, I think in particular those of us with white privilege have to address, um, and, and of goodwill, have to address um, our shame, our guilt, our fear, our feeling of powerlessness. And we can't ask our, our brothers and sisters of color to help us do this or to hold our hands as we do this. They've got their hands full working with oppression and the different forms of oppression, both direct, institutionalized, internalized. You know, we have to try to understand that history. History. We have to try to understand that context. Um, but we have to step back and deal with which, what is, in, in, in essence, our own side of the oppression. We ha- also have a form of oppression which keeps us powerless, which keeps us um, petrified. And that we can't be allies when we're powerless through our, our guilt or our shame 
of our fear. So we've got to push through those things. And these are actually very deep emotional things which we share socially. So if we look at the, um, the indigenous rights movement, we find they've developed um, very powerful ways of dealing with historical trauma. We are all suffering either on one side or the other from this historical trauma. Um, and there are ways of dealing with it. It's not just, you know, going to, to a shrink on an individual basis. I mean, this is, you know, we have to be our own sort of social shrink and, and deal with this socially and both and emotionally. So we've, we've got to create these spaces, these safe spaces to deal with this. We've got to uh, build the trust and um, we've, we've got to um, take, the, take the risks in order to do this. I think one good place to start is, is to share a vision. And if we can create a shared vision, then we can walk the different paths to get there. And, you know, <laughs> this is possibly a terrible metaphor, but we can sort of text each other along the paths. Um, and one thing we can do is we can ask, you know, what would our food system look like if our food workers were food secure? What would our food system look like if farm workers um, received um, decent wages, living wages, and had decent working conditions regardless of their immigration status? What would our food system look like if we recognized and honored the fact that women produce most of the world's food? And what would our food system look like if black lives mattered? This is indeed, as you're saying, cultural, he cultural healing, generational healing is something that has to be at the core of any, of any vision that is created, in, in my opinion. And I, and I think that's what I'm gathering from, from what you're saying as, as well. So to bring it back to the material, I know as, you know, Food First, they have three, three main pillars in, in a lot of the work that they do, right? Like building new local agri-food systems, um, forming food sovereignty within farming and rural peasant communities, both like in the global south and then in the global north, um, and then democratizing development. So one thing nestled underneath all of those, I think, is, is land reform, right? And like giving land back to the people who want to use it to produce and who should have access to, you know, what they produce on that land. Um, what, what does genuine land reform look like in your eyes? Um, and then if it's not too much of a stretch, right, because our, our narratives, our senses of selves, our individual and cultural histories are so wedded to soil, how, how can we weave in some of these ideas of cultural healing that we are just discussing? Mm -hmm. Well, um, that's a very good question because I think, you know, this is a praxis. And it's very dialectical. In other words, you know, um, it's action, reflection, action. And that's both part of the healing process and it's also part of the doing process, you know. Mm. Um, and in regards to land, which I think is obviously central to all of this in the food system. And, and, and now it's central to the financial system. Um, 
land reform is not enough. We, we need redistributive reform in general because we need redistributive justice, right? Um, and so we would need redistributive agrarian reform because it's not enough for people to have access to land if they get clobbered in the market by, by monopolies. Um, it's, you know, it's not enough for people to have um, access to land if uh, their water is contaminated or if their water is grabbed. Right? I mean, so uh, uh, it's really not enough for people to have access to land if they're denied education or, or, or health services because they can't pay for them. Um, so I, I do think land is essential, and be, especially because now what we're seeing is sort of the, the financialized stage of the agrarian transition worldwide. And what I mean by that is um, because wealth has concentrated so much in the hands of so few, and um, post the 2008-2011 food price crises, so much money was made by the food monopolies, by the grain companies, by the seed and input companies, by the retailers. They have nowhere to put this money, and they certainly don't want to keep it in cash. You don't want to keep it in the bank. You've got to reinvest it, but we're undergoing a global recession, so where are you going to reinvest this money? I mean, this is billions and billions, of trillions of dollars, basically. Um, and so what's happened is the tremendous uh, profits made on Wall Street and the tremendous profits made on, uh, in the, in the uh, food system by the monopolies are being reinvested in land. And so we have essentially land grabs going on around the world, something like 88 million acres. That's just in the big land grabs that are 500 hectares and up. And many of these deals are quite shady. And many of these deals uh, are built on a narrative of, oh, this is unused land. When, of course, it isn't. There are people living there. They make their, their livelihoods there. Maybe they're not living well, but that doesn't mean you can just grab the land and they're going to be okay. Um, so this is happening around the world, um, both with sovereign wealth funds coming from government, but also coming right out of Wall Street with Goldman Sachs or coming out of our retirement uh, pension funds, right? Um, or, you know, Harvard University buying up 10,000 uh, 10, acres in California and then converting it into grapes, you know, that's a water grab, actually. That's not a land grab. That's a big water grab. So, and it's because that's what makes most financial sense. Mm -hmm. So, the, one of the first things we have to address in the land question, both worldwide and in this country, where land is being financialized and you can make more for what you can trade on the market than you can by making it produce, um, is we have to address our financial sector. The financial sector has to be re-regulated. This, this is ridiculous. Um, and it's extremely bad. If you think about farmland in the U.S., they say it's like gold with yield. Um, the yield doesn't get you that much, but the gold gets you a lot these days. So, you know, farmers are, are selling out, and, and once, it, once you sell out and it, it hits the financial market, these financial consortia are buying up land all across the United States, and then, you know, the time horizon for the land shifts from an agricultural time horizon, which in 
you know, the best instances is several generations of how you manage the land. You're looking forward several generations to a financial time horizon where you're looking forward, you know, maybe several minutes because of the, you know, the velocity of trading um, of assets in, in financial markets around the world. So when land enters the financial markets like that, um, we really lose control over an essential resource um, and we lose control over the soil, the water, you know, everything that, that uh, is land-based. So we need to, we need a very different financial system in order to ensure a stable land system before we can even talk about re any redistributive land policies. And clearly in this country where land is, is rapidly concentrating into the hands of the financial giants, we have to think about some sort of uh, redistributive justice. We need land justice in this country. People need access to land, and they're, on ge and they're not getting it. You know, I talk often to um, farmers who are older and lament the fact that there's no one to take over the farm. Well, one reason is that um, you need to be a billionaire to take over the farm. I mean, you really need a lot of money to take over the farm. It's, it's very difficult to get into farming. And then it's, it's very, very risky to get into the farming. There are no real social protections for, for farmers or small farmers. Um, and uh, the other sort of contradiction is very often these farmers are surrounded by farmers. It just they happen to be farm workers. They happen to, have, to be people of color and they happen to have come from, you know, Mexico or Central America or, or the Caribbean. Um, but it's not that, that we don't have any farmers in this country. We've got tons of farmers, you know, but too many of them are washing dishes or working in the packing plants or, or uh, uh, harvesting the crops themselves. So, you know, I think we really have, we need a different agrarian vision, something that Hannah Whitman calls agrarian, uh, we need agrarian citizenship and agrarian justice in order to address um, these very deep systemic issues which then resurface as, you know, problems with land, problems with food access, problems with labor. Certainly, the, the collapsing of time horizons as we financialize and commodify land is also paralleled by, by a collapse of rural life in America, right? Like old farming generations, families who have been working the land for generations on generations are going away. They're dissipating. Um, their, their children can't take over the land, and they have very few systemic incentives to be able to stay on the land or to make it, you know, a safer and non-risky bet. Just to just to clarify some terminology, would you be able to distinguish for me um, the difference between food movement, food sovereignty, and food justice? Ah, sure. Um, and I guess we also have to clarify food system for a lot food, of folks, food too. Food system as well. I mean, okay, so, and um, food regime. And, and you know, there's a lot of terms oh, which these, we have yeah, been throwing around, and I'm sure some people are scratching their heads and wondering what we're talking about. Well, I mean, the food system uh, is, is basically um, uh, everything we use and need to produce and um, process, distribute, buy and consume food. So the, the system has you know, the 
uh, inputs, the, the credit, the fertilizers, the pesticides, the seeds, or, um, or the labor and, and, uh, that, that goes into producing a crop. And um, then after the crop is produced, you know, we've got all the, the transport and the, and the processors and uh, get to the retailers. And, what, and then you get to the consumers. But what we see is that there's, if you can imagine an hourglass, we have the bottom of the hourglass or the top of the hourglass, if you like, is all the producers. It's quite large. And then it gets quite small when you get to the retailers. The retailers really have a chokehold on the food system. Um, so the input suppliers, even the grain companies and whatnot, um, are, you know, you have the, the big part is the producers, and then you get to the input suppliers and then the grain companies, and you get down to the retailers, and they're the sort of the, the, the thin neck of the hourglass, and then you open up into the, the uh, consumers. So that's our, our food system, and our food systems are, have uh, been... Uh, transformed over the last half century. They're very global in scope. Uh, the largest, uh, so we eat meat, and where does the meat come from? Well, it, it, in large part, it comes from these factory farms. Where do they get the grain? Well, a lot of it can come from uh, the, the Midwest, but a lot of it can come from Brazil because they can produce it more cheaply. So the largest grain uh, processor in Brazil is Cargill, which is, of course, a privately held company from the United States. Um, but Brazil is the largest producer of soy. Um, a large part of the soy goes to uh, China. You know what I mean? So we have this globalized food system with a set of rules um, which include the, uh, the rules, the free trade agreements, includes the uh, U.S. Farm Bill, which is basically a set of rules which is imposed upon the world in terms of market price and what gets was gets um, planted and sold and whatnot. So that's the, those, these are the food system and the food regime is all of the institutions and the rules which control these different steps in producing and consuming food, right? And a lot of these rules came about, at least for our current food system, in the 70s and the 80s. They're a very recent invention. Right, the, well, the you know, actually the, the rules uh, have been there for a while, but the intent and the nature of the rules has changed. So the New Deal that Roosevelt introduces to pull this country out of the Great Depression following the stock market crash and the, because of the period of the Roaring Twenties, which was basically, you know, liberalization of the market. Um, this big crash um, and a huge crisis and it looked like this country was going to fall. And uh, so Roosevelt is able to introduce reforms because people took to the streets. And um, it starts with agriculture. And so our, our rules around agriculture and, and the food system and the first food programs, food aid programs, start with Roosevelt, right? Um, but these were to, to rebuild the economy and rebuild the country. Now our food rules are, are, are predatory and allow the food system. To, it's a very extractive food system in terms of wealth, whereas before it was a food system about building wealth. Now it's a food system about extracting wealth. Um, so in response, we have food movements. And food movements are very important because reforms are never introduced simply on the basis of the goodwill of reformists. Reformists are powerless without the power of food, of, of social movements, basically. Of, of the people, of the people out in the streets. Precisely. 
I mean, Roosevelt would never have been able to have um, convinced the corporate magnates at the, at the time uh, of, the ne- of the necessity of inter- introducing uh, reforms if it wasn't for the fact that it looked like this country might fall because, of, because people were up in arms and the labor movement was strong and it, a lot of people thought maybe communism or socialism might not be such a bad idea. People were afraid that, that capitalism might fall. So on the basis of the tremendous social power, Roosevelt has the political will to be able to introduce reforms. So the food movement is worldwide is one of the most powerful social movements in the world today alongside the women's movement. And so in the United States, um, the food movement is pretty far flung and you know it's got sort of different levels to it, but the most um, Polit- the most powerful and the, the part of the food movement which has the most political potential is the food justice movement because it is, um, is, is comprised of the people f- who are most negatively impacted by the food system and who have the highest stake in transforming that food system. Um, not just reforming, but transforming. And if we want to introduce reforms which really make a difference, and not go back to just what we had a few years ago, we're going to have to have transformative reforms. So um, food justice would be that part of the movement which sees that our food system is racialized, falls heaviest and most negatively upon people of color, um, and is primarily led by people of color, the food justice movement. Um, And I think it has some of the most potential and believes that we can get justice from this government in our food system. Uh, And the roots of this go back, and some roots are quite radical, like with the Black Panther Party. Other roots come from the the environmental justice movement. Uh, But if one thinks about all the different uh, roots and branches of the food food justice movement, you know, it all comes from these different justice movements coming together and addressing food at the neighborhood level and then at the, na- uh, the national level in terms of policy. Now, food sovereignty is a, um, a concept that overlaps very deeply with, with food justice, but it comes from the global south, and it comes primarily from uh, peasant movements, uh, largely around land reform, historically around land reform, but now that have, are addressing the entire food system and food sovereignty is, um, you know, the demands that uh, we need to democratize our food system in favor of the poor, and that people have the right to control uh, food, pro- to access uh, to food-producing resources, have to right to control uh, and determine how they, uh, what kind of food they're going to produce, what kind of food they're going to consume, what kind of food, and they have the right to uh, protection from. Uh, predatory markets, like the, the global market in food, uh, controlled by those who have the most market power, which are the monopolies. In a sense, both the food justice movement and the food sovereignty movement um, overlap in what some people are calling the food commons. In other words, that part of our society, which is not determined by the rules of the market, but is determined by the social rules which we agree upon. 
So in our democracy, we all have equal rights, theoretically. Now, it doesn't shake out that way because mm -hmm. of the way racism works in our country um, and the way classism works. But in democracy, we all have equal rights. But in a commons, we all have equal power. And so what the food justice movement is moving towards is equal power, regardless of race, class, gender. Um, sexual orientation, I mean, and um, the, even though its demands are much more about justice, in fact, at its core, it's about a redistribution of power, which is precisely what the food sovereignty movement is about. And the food sovereignty movement grows very much in opposition to um, all of the neoliber neoliberal policies and the free trade agreements that were, are systematically destroying the livelihoods of a third of the world's population, in the peasantry, fishers, small fishers. Um, so, and just just to emphasize, uh, you know, when we talk about food and the food system, very often we forget to talk about our fisheries. You know, our fisheries are being grabbed as we speak as well. Our fisheries are being monopolized as well. Our fisheries are being turned, and uh, this whole move towards aquaculture is being turned towards things which are environmentally and socially highly destructive. Um, just take a look at, at how, we, how shrimp is now being cultivated, or the move towards genetically engineered salmon and whatnot, um, the, the uh, modern world slavery which takes place on factory ships around the world. So we, we can't forget fisheries, and we can't forget um, organizations like the World Federation of Fisher Peoples who are trying to... to um, fight back. And we can't forget the link between land-based production and fish production. Right now, because part of the explosion of, of, uh, of soy cultivation is for fish. And a, and a lot of the fishing for the smaller fish, you know, anchovies and whatnot, which people used to eat, now is for fish meal, mm -hmm. for to feed fish. Right? Um, and so th there's there, you know, there's a link between what's happening on the land and what's happening in the sea. And so uh, food sovereignty is really uh, grown to address both of these things. And you know, there's this big overlap now with the food justice movement where we see not just um, agrarian peoples making demands uh, to roll back this corporate food regime, but people from inner cities um, and consumers and people on, on in the periphery also. So it's in the global north, it's in the global south, it's in rural areas, it's in urban areas as well. All right, so to conclude the interview, one final question that is at once personal, you know, turning turning the mirror, the dialectic back on myself. Where, where would you suggest or where would you point youth, students like myself, if, if we're interested in creating more equitable, more equally distributed power system and food system, where would you point us to go early on in our lives? Should we go to the farm? Should we go to the kitchen? Should we become organizers? Or should we just, you know, commit to being hard-nosed policy wonks? Uh, where, where would you think students, youth, young people can do the most work and the best work? Right. Well, starting off, you can start doing the work right at school. I mean, there are all these contradictions on our campuses and between our campus and the community. So students, uh, if they are 
at a university or a community college, they are in a very special space, a space actually of tremendous privilege. Um, and so to be good allies, one needs to put that privilege at the service of the communities. Um, and um, so in a tremendous position to do that, you can change the school food, you can look at how you can get your university to, divide it, to divest, you can also um, work to stop university land grabs, you can denounce them, um, you can insist on programs from the university which actually benefit the community and give students an, uh, a chance to work with the community. You can make sure that the land that the university has um, dedicated to, say, urban agriculture is actually a place which serves the interests of the community. There's a lot you can do as a student. And I would say in leaving uh, the university or leaving the community college, wherever uh, you happen to be studying, uh, the state college, then I'm a big fan of what Joseph Campbell always used to say, which was follow your bliss. Do those things which you really like to do. If you really like to farm, then you should farm. If you really are a policy wonk, then you should do that. But do it with the particular goal in mind of transforming this corporate food regime, of dismantling racism in the food system, and of moving towards a much more redistributive form of land justice, food justice, workers' justice, immigrant justice. I mean, these are the issues of our time. And we need um, powerful activists in, in, in all areas in order to be able to address this. And at the end of the day, um, look at who you are. Look, look at whatever oppression you may be dealing with. Look at your community. Look at whatever privileges you may have and take the steps, take the initiative to heal from historical trauma because that's what will make you most powerful. If you don't do that, it's going to be very difficult to do these other things because you're carrying around all this, this extra weight, all this extra baggage, and you won't be able to think clearly. The thing about, about healing historical trauma is that you then think more clearly, and we need people who think clearly in order to do this work. And on that note, thank you so much for all the knowledge you just dropped and all the wisdom you just passed on. Well, thanks so much for having me.